Excellent. The Lord be with you. Um, thank you for fixing that, Jacqueline. There's um, a couple of, of uh, reminder announcements I want to draw your attention to coming up on Wednesday in two weeks. Uh, it'll be every Wednesday morning at 11.15 for anybody who's uh, not working or at school, basically. Uh, just an opportunity for midweek divine service. It'll be short, basically like we did during our, our COVID. We had a short like COVID communion service we did. Um, it was like limited to 10 people or something, but this will be, it's a shorter opportunity for divine services, uh, communion during the week, uh, shorter sermon, um, but all, the communion will be there and not really any singing, like one hymn. And then we'll, we'll, from there, we'll go into the, to the youth room for, uh, for coffee and fellowship and a little bit of, for catechesis, who, who, whoever, might, whoever might be there, want to stick around. So that's 11.15 starting in two weeks, and we'll remind you again next week. And again, on Oktoberfest, have you seen the sign up for that out in the, in the narthex, but also through the church, uh, the week at a glance. So the idea behind the Oktoberfest is, is basically what we, the ideal fellowship. We, for me, I'm always trying to keep a big church, have a big church, a big-ish church. We're not massive, but it's big enough that you can get lost. So you want to make a big church feel like a small church. And the way to do that is, I mean, what you guys are doing now, you sit with people you don't know, have a conversation, you get up, you plug in somewhere, you know, you jump into the, uh, like the McSwines, you jump into making coffee, and next thing you know, you're like making coffee all the time, suckers. I mean, welcome. Uh, <laughs> but like, that's the idea. Like you get, you plug in somewhere, you, you get involved, you get to know people. Oktoberfest is, is just another great way to do that. Lots of different fun things. Um, this year, we've, we've we shifted the, the focus of the last few years had just been to build congregational fellowship. Now, uh, we're noticing a lot of, there's a lot of people who are utilizing our school who are uh, maybe unaffiliated with the church. They're, they're probably, um, they're conservative, or we would say you know, like on a political spectrum. Um, they, they are Bible believing typically, but they just don't have a church home. And um, so we're trying to say, look, I mean, the church, the school can be a potential opportunity for, for mission only in so far as we, to have conversation with people. Many people like you might even know from your community, your neighborhood or so forth, but just to have a conversation with somebody. There's, there's, it's funny as I get to know all of you, all of you are obviously very different. You all have different backgrounds and different interests and hobbies and all this, but there's like... The, the kind of a fun thing as a pastor is you can kind of get people together. Like, oh, you're an engineer who works for whatever. Oh, I know somebody else who works there. And you got to get them together and you can commiserate about your vocation uh, <laughs> or something like But just to get people together, right? There's a lot of overlap and a lot of things you have in common. So if you, if you can, if you, want, if you want to come to Oktoberfest and, and just chill and have a beer and a brat, please do. I got two kegs coming. Brouch has a couple kegs coming. And I can't remember, Ty... Ty was having some fermentation issues, so we look forward to a number of kegs of homebrew and brats and lots of fun things for the, for the family. Uh, I think trivia night as well. Looks like there's trivia happening, so lots of different things to plug into. Um, also, today is Stewardship Sunday. So when, whenever the Board of Finance says, hey, we want to have a, a stewardship emphasis day, I kind of like look at the pericopes and try to find one that I can easily undermine the traditional law message of stewardship, right? So the idea, if you're able, if you're at early service, I mean, you want to, the, the law is always trying to, to squash you down. And it's true that if you're not careful, your money will become your God. 
and it'll lead you away from Jesus. And therefore, don't be stingy with your, with your money. Uh, give it to others. Love others with your money. Uh, you can't serve two masters. And, and really, today's, today's uh, Bible study is going to be all about that too. But that's all law that we already had. It was in the Ten Commandments, and it was, it was true and clear for the Jews prior to Jesus coming. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's not a new lawgiver. He's not bringing new stuff. So when you hear the parable of the unworthy or the unjust or the dishonest steward from today's gospel lesson, you have to kind of look at it and say, if we don't get the gospel out of this, if the cross isn't necessary for this parable to make sense, then we're doing it wrong because Jesus is headed to the cross. And so he's not stopping along the way to just kind of give some financial advice to folks. So he's got, his, he's got the cross on his mind and the cross has implications for everything that he's saying, especially in these parables, and double especially in these ones that can often be uh, misunderstood or difficult to understand, like in the unjust steward from today. So um, just generally, one, one quick note on stewardship because you have a lot of different teachings on it and all this. Whenever somebody says, hey, it's Stewardship Sunday, you think, we're gonna be out of town, I think. Um, <laughs> Well, that's, so I think a healthier view of stewardship is um, everything that you have, including your time, your life, your money, all your stuff, it, all, it, it is, is God's. He has given it to you for a time. It's great to think of our children like this as well. He's given us, he's entrusted these children to us if he even decided to give us children. I mean, he blesses, we understand marriage as a gift, so he doesn't give everybody a spouse. So he, he, he gives us with a spouse where he sees fit. He gives us with children as he sees fit. And we're able to see these children as a gift from him uh, for us to love and serve and care and teach the faith while they're under our, under our authority. And then God will call them, and this is a hard thing to say as parents, God will call, him back, call them back to himself when he's good and ready. But while they're here, we're to be faithful in our vocation to serve them. Same for like all of our stuff, our money, our, our time, um, all of this has been entrusted to us for us to use to serve him. So that we don't want to get wrapped up. I mean, in, in the Old Testament, I know I talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, but you have the, the clear like 10%, the tithe idea under, under Jewish law. When you, when you have an entire tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel who has not given land, they don't have, they, they don't, it's like you, you, you 11 tribes can work but this one tribe isn't going to be able to like till the earth and sell stuff and actually build an income for themselves because they're going to have to be working in the temple exclusively. So the way that that was set up and it was necessary for the temple to work that way. And so people were, people were having to give a tenth of their income to the, to the Lord, essentially to the temple. To, and that was what's feeding the priests and their families. But in the New Testament, we don't have such such laws given to us. It's all done in freedom. Paul is a tent maker in the, in the early church. He's, he's trying to actually be a pastor and make tents. And then you get people being generous because they realize, you know what, why is Paul making tents? He's going to be more effective in this town if he's just out preaching the gospel all the time and not having to stop and sell cars or build a business or whatever the thing is. And that's more of our New Testament model of giving in the church. It is, uh, we're generous with what we have, but all of, all of what you have belongs to the Lord already. It's not 10%. 100% of your stuff is God's. And so when a husband buys flowers for his wife, is that not the wife that God gave him? Does he not want her to love him? Or does God not want him to love her? Yes, he does. 
Uh, he does want the husband to buy flowers for his wife or wear, show love to his family and put food on the table. So like when a father, for example, is providing for his family, that's, all, that's in service to his, to his God. So it's not limited to a percentage. We don't get it wrapped up in that. And that sets us free then from any kind of bondage, any kind of like law approach to giving. And we can just say, all right, whatever, I, whatever I've got, I mean, I'd like, I'd like to have a church. Um, I like for somebody to come visit me in the hospital when I'm sick. So, but we don't have to have all this. We don't have to have a, a building. We can meet in the Walsh's basement. They'd love to have us over there. Um, and, and, so, and, and also, like, all the pastors, we can all get jobs, right? But, you know, we, we kind of know the problem there. It's like, if you, every time you go into surgery, if you're like, well... The guy who has all the training and spends all of his time doing surgery isn't available, but I have this other guy who's actually a car salesman most of the time, but every now and then he gets to pop in and do surgery. That's the guy who's on duty for you today for open heart surgery. Which one do you want? The guy who's doing surgery all the time or the guy who normally does? So the idea is uh, we have people who are specially trained to spend all their time doing this so we can actually do it and do it well. Uh, and so also, when you go into surgery, if they, oh, the, none of the doctors are available because they're all out doing other jobs, then you're like, well, I, but I need surgery now. I'm in the, I'm in the hospital now. I need, I need a pastor now. He can't because he's, he's working a nine to five. And if he just leaves his nine to five, then he'll get canned, right? So that's, but that sets us free then as the church to say, we have, a, we, have a, we have freedom to have pastors and employ them and have in, in, in our case, have three pastors and have a school and have all these like mission endeavors. We had the same approach with the youth pastor. It's like we had, our giving was good. Um, we're in a good financial, stable financial situation. We, have, we seem to have a lot of young families and young children who we'd like to focus on more. And so if we can kind of pitch in together and we got a little bit extra money lying around, let's direct it toward the kids and the families and we'll get a pastor and, and try that route for a while. But that's totally free. And then we we're, were able to kind of look at the, the way that we're giving as, uh, as a free gift and give joyfully and freely rather than doing it under some kind of, um, like I'm keeping a law or I'm somehow making God, making God happy by doing this. God doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's given you what you have. It's not like a surprise to him. So, and that sets us free, right? Any questions or thoughts on that? Like it's very... I, it's, it's nice to set people free. That's how you, that's how you get at joy. And the scriptures say, talking about giving generously. And that's not just here, by the way. Like the early church is riddled uh, in a good way with, all, it's almsgiving. So it's the guy, this guy doesn't have any, you do this in your, own, in your own lives. Like you have a friend who's been laid off and they can't feed their kids. And you, it's not like you're gonna say, well, that's too bad and walk away. You're gonna say, yeah, I got extra food lying around. Can we get, let's, let's cook two pork butts this week and bring him some extra barbecue this weekend until he can get another job and help the guy get up and going, right? We're, we're kind of like, we're loving and serving our neighbor, but it's done freely. But as soon as somebody's forcing you to do it, it kind of kills the freedom. To, not to get political, but that's, that's part of the problem with the welfare state in a way, because you get the, the state kind of comes in and, and taxes you at a high rate on the promise that they're going to take care of those who have great needs and then they don't get actually taken care of, but they've still taken your money. But these people still have needs and your conscience is still saying, I need to take care of them. I wish I had more, but the government took it. <laughs> but we can't really complain about that because we all drove here 
You know, yeah, we're wearing clothes. There's more than one coat in our closets. So we're doing fine. We can take care of those who have needs. But it's, done, it's always done in freedom. Um, and, unless we need to hear the law. And so like today in today's gospel lesson, Jesus does give some, some law that, hey, if you're not looking to the needs of your neighbor and you are making money into your God, then stop, repent. Money isn't your God. It can't save you. It can't help you. You can't serve two masters. You can only, you can only have one. And money will become the, the idol that forces Jesus out. And that's where our, our old sinful self does need to hear that and be turned away from our sin. So that's a little bit on the, on the unfaithful steward from this, this morning's gospel. I look forward to, if you haven't been around, we get to hear the, hear the gospel lesson in late service today. So Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, speaking of money, Luke 12, verse 13. So we just finished Jesus' counsel on uh, giving a good witness, acknowledging Jesus before men. And then he gets into the parable of the rich fool, which has a lot of, a lot of carryover, and I guess with today's gospel reading. Verse 13, someone in the crowd, uh, so if you have your handout, it's the second big block. So we didn't make it very far last week. That's correct. You're assuming. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, let's unpack it. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. So let's get the context. Remember, I mean, Jesus has is, Jesus is just taught about uh, giving testimony. Don't worry about when the Pharisees or the authorities, they, they bring you before the authorities. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Uh, don't love your body and your life more than the heavenly kingdoms. So fear God um, more than those who can hurt the body, but rather fear the one who can take the body and the soul and throw it into hell. So fear God and God alone. But ultimately, God, God says to you, do not fear. I mean, that, that's all this totally different thing. And then in the same conversation, someone just kind of looks around like they weren't paying attention. They just kind of stumbled into the room late. Kind of, and then they raise their hand. Oh, Jesus, uh, could you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Like what? Everybody else in the room's like, what are you talking what are you talking about? Uh, and yet, I mean, we're the same way. I mean, notice like how it's easy to look at everybody else's families and find, see the problems therein. But it's like money, whenever like somebody dies and there's an inheritance, it can, it can divide a family time and time again. Uh, so this is no, this is good, maybe instruction for all of us. So this guy, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Divide the inheritance. So that is, that, that is, he wants divide. He wants half, I guess, of an eternal inheritance or an earthly inheritance. An earthly inheritance from his heavenly father or his earthly father. His earthly father. And so you see this completely different 
He said, he's asking Jesus the totally wrong question. So he's focused on his earthly stuff and he wants half of this earthly stuff. Now, for some random guy to show up to Jesus and ask him to, to tell my brother to divide the inheritance seems weird to us. Um, I mean, I guess we saw a little bit of it with Martha when she's running up to Jesus. Jesus, tell Mary to help me wash the dishes. Uh, it's not that. This is more in the sense that the, in the Jewish culture, especially in the time of Jesus, the rabbis were often serving as arbitrators or as judges of matters. So it would have been normal for someone to have a, dis- a debate about something, and they're seeking a third party, an objective third party, to come to that, the, that the, this person can give us the final word. So coming to Jesus as the judge, and that's why he says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Well, most rabbis are stepping into that role, so they were expecting a similar thing from Jesus. And in a way, Jesus is a judge, right? But he's just not in the way that this guy wanted it. You know, Jesus is the one in the last day separating the sheep and the goats, but it's not about what this guy's about. Yes, ma'am, at least. Um, I, I think maybe it's the other way around. I think our covetousness has increased our desire for social media. <laughs> uh, so we're always, we want to see what everybody else has. We want to see what's going on. I mean, but it may, and, and to be sure, it's maybe a vicious cycle. So we can't watch a commercial. I mean, what's a commercial trying to do? Show me that my iPhone is inferior and the next one can solve all my problems, right? So I'm, I'm always looking at what others, not really what necessarily what others have, but it's the, the desire for more in a ultimately, and I was gonna get to that maybe with the question, what is, what is, what is covetousness? What does it mean to covet? There's two commandments about it. What is it? Yeah? Yeah, so I think a good way, it's like it, it's, it's, it's a simultaneous, it's, it's maybe fed by desire what other people have or just seeing what other people have and bringing immediate dissatisfaction to what you have. Now, it's good advice. Watch out, he says. Take, take care from the Greek arao, see, look, look out, and be on your guard. That's the same, watch out. It's a stern warning against this problem of covetousness. Now, so on, a, on the one hand, we, you, you can kind of guard against this. Um, so it's like the law functions in these two ways. You know that if you're always coveting what other people have, you're never going to like have joy in what you have. Like if you spend around all your time watching HGTV and watching all those guys who come in and like magically flip a house in like an afternoon, you're like, oh, wouldn't that be nice to have our kitchen look like that? You walk around your house and everywhere you go, you're seeing all these projects rather than recognizing the gift that your house actually is. And that you ask, I have a house over my head. So there's a joy and a satisfaction in what we currently have. Um, covetousness, though, it's not just that we can, we can stop it. Remember, the Ten Commandments are doing two, three things. But one of the main things, it's, it's showing us that we do covet 
It's warning you that when you do, it's going to take all the joy out of your life. It's going to kill the little joy that you have in the stuff that you have when you start coveting what everybody else has. You're never going to have enough. It's never going to be up to date enough. As soon as you have it, as soon as you buy the, the new car, another one rolls off the lot, right? So it's never, or at least, or it gets in the supply chain and you know it's coming at some point. <laughs> For those of you who tried to buy a car recently, <laughs> you drive a Toyota, I went to Toyota like, uh, wanted to give me a free oil change. Who says no to that? But they wanted me to give it, they wanted me to get a free oil change so they could offer to buy my car so they could sell it to somebody else. When you pull onto the Toyota lot, it's like a ghost town. Where are all the cars? It's crazy. Anyway, but the, covet, the, the law against covetousness is actually, it's telling us what we already know. I'm always coveting. We're always doing it. Um, it but when you do, the warning is it, it's gonna ki- it kills the joy that you have. So be on guard. Watch out. Um, but so not just killing the joy in our own life, but think about how covetousness manifests itself in our, the way we spend our lives, the way we use our time, the way we, the way we use our money, the decisions that we make. Like even you mentioned social media or just don't take social out of it, just media in general, because you can't, I mean, this is advertising behind any TV show that you watch. It's always throwing something at me to bring me a dissatisfaction with my body. Um, don't you want to be healthier? Um, my, the stuff that I have, my family, um, Longing for that which I don't have and bringing a dissatisfaction to what I do. And it just in the, that also kills the, the, um, the, the truth that God has given me what I have. Like the, the family that I have, the, the money that I have, the, the money that I don't have, the health that I have, the health that I don't have, any, anything in that. Like every, we're able to look at our lives and all that we have and recognize that God has given it to me. That's the first article of the creed, right? He's given me my body and soul, my eyes and ears, my reputation, all this stuff. He's surrounded me with all that I have as gift. And so, a side note there, even like the, the, the seeming lack is a gift. And our, the prayer would be that we would, that we would be able to see how it is a gift. Because, I mean, in some cases, it's easier to see than others, right? So how is, my, how is this lack of health a gift? Um, uh, one of my pastor friends was recounting something that a buddy of his had said. He had like a stroke and he was like essentially paralyzed in a way for 10 years before he finally died. And, and this like great Christian witness of there's a blessing in this for me. He says what he said. He was able to kind of get it out with his limited stroke vocabulary. There's a blessing in this for me. I just don't know what it is. Now that's obviously an extreme example, but the Christian's able to say, we see it easier with money, right? It's easy to see how money kind of comes at us um, as this fruit, this forbidden fruit, or this, this fruit on the tree that's promising all these wonderful things, that if I just had it, if I just ate it, I would have all these great things. And ultimately it evaporates as soon as you get it, and in fact can rob you of joy. Most sin uh, is that way, in fact. Um, I think I was talking about this with our new member class. All, all sins, especially these big sins, are like, they have this hint of pleasure. Like, a, like because they're, they're adulterations or they're fallen versions of true gifts. Adultery is an easy example to see that. 
So the true gift of sexuality that's given to marriage, so you take sexuality out of marriage, it still offers or claims to offer some sort of pleasure, but ultimately does not satisfy and does significant damage to the marriage and to the self and so many other things. And yet at least it, it does kind of give a little bit of, it offers to get a little bit of pleasure, which is part of what makes it appealing, right? Same with all, all sins. Covetousness is a totally empty one though. It doesn't give, it only takes. It, has a, it doesn't have, it doesn't, there's nothing to be gained by looking at what other people have and wanting more of it because it doesn't actually fill your pockets. At least stealing fills your pockets. See, so this is really convicting. Um, so take, be on guard, watch out. Uh, not to desire more than you are due or to be greedy for what you don't have. For one's life, and this is the great wisdom, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is huge. One's life does not consist. I mean, the Greek is straighter. It's One's life is not. So now we, we, we think of like consistent or like my life is not made up of the abundance of stuff. He just says, your life is not the abundance of stuff. What is life? Or put it better, who is life? So Jesus, it's a person. So that my life is not the abundance of stuff, but my life is ultimately Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. So to have him is ultimately to have everything. And this gets into um, a theme that's been, that's been circulating in our, uh, our teacher devotions uh, on Wednesdays, this, the, idea of a, the idea of the good life. What is, what is the good life? It drives, it drives everybody. Every single person has an idea in their head of what is the good life that I'm aspiring toward. And ultimately, the, like the ideal of where I want to see myself in 20 years. Or if I had all my wildest dreams come true, this is what that picture would be. And that would be the good life. So for the Christian, we have this totally otherworldly view of what the good life actually is. It's a, it's a life that we can actually say, I can have nothing. Uh, this is next week's gospel lesson, actually. The rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man actually has everything and Lazarus has nothing and he can't even get the dogs away from him. They're, the dogs are licking his sores and there's flies everywhere. It's a terrible thing. And he able, he's able to have, he has the good life because he has this eternal faith in the midst of his lack so to have the one, the, the, the good life, capital L, Jesus, uh, is actually to have everything even in the midst of nothing and is able to say, I have everything that matters, even though everything else is taken away from me. And then it also helps us prioritize the stuff that we have when we have it, like to keep it away from becoming your God and let, stop not letting it control you or at least fighting against it because you know this isn't my life. So like, you finally, you, you scrape together, you, 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 get a good, you get a decent job, you scrape together some extra income, you, you, put, you, you, you have a nice lump savings, and you put it all in the market last Monday. <laughs> and then immediately, <laughs> this is exactly what happened to me. I took, I took all of, uh, Annabelle will appreciate this later, but I took like some savings. That I had a small bank account of hers, all the birthday presents that come in. 
hundred bucks from grandma. I put it in here. And finally, it got to be a, a, the minimum amount for this one Vanguard fund. So I put it in Vanguard on Monday. <laughs> it's like, how did I lose $300 so quickly? It just like whisked away, gone. What a great, I mean, that's a small, I know, so you guys add some more zeros to that, and that's probably what happened to your IRAs or whatever on Tuesday. But that's, the idea is, you haven't, you haven't lost what mattered. We're able to say, oh, that's kind of a bummer. Um, the earthly advice would be, oh, don't worry, the market will come back. But maybe, I mean, at some point, maybe it won't. Uh, every culture that ultimately collapsed reached a point where they said, don't worry, the market will come back, and it didn't, right? But, but that's, that's not... The Lord's, what the Lord is saying to us is like, it doesn't matter. You can't take it with you anyway. And since when does the abundance of possessions do anything good? Life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. And that's what the world, I mean, to the world, that, what, what else does life consist in? What else could the point even be? But the abundance of possessions. Or if it's just not stuff, it's maybe the health to try to prolong my life as much as, as, much as possible. So, oh, you know, eat, eat, eat only organic. <laughs> uh, to cut, cut yourself off from, all, from humanity. Go off the grid and try to live completely primitively um, to try to prolong your life as long as possible. Well, but your life doesn't consist of this anyway. Stop being driven by it. Uh, your life consists not in what you possess, but in who possesses you. That's a nice way to flip that around. Life doesn't consist in your possessions, but in who possesses you. The, the life, the eternal life. And he told them a parable saying, what are we doing on time? Oh, we're great. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So it, notice... What produced plentifully? The man. He worked really hard. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He got a great education. He, he stayed late nights. He got the extra certifications to make the extra money. He put in the extra time. No, that's the, like the Americanized idea, right? What produced? What ultimately did it? The land. Which for us as Christians, we can say it wasn't even the land. It was God. Who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? So this guy received everything he had is only, only a gift from God, not from himself. But he was thinking it was actually from himself. We're able to say that if, if I do happen to find myself in a time of plenty, it is from the Lord's hand. Uh, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? Now notice, you can go through and just count all the eyes and mys. I thought, he, he thought to himself, turns, he turns inward to his own belly, what shall one, I do, for I too have nowhere to store my crops, three. And he said, I, four, will do this. I, five, will tear down my barns, six, and build larger ones. And there I, seven, will store all my grain, eight, and my goods, nine. And I, 10, will say to my soul, 11. So who's he focused on? <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> Kind of, it's hard to, hard to miss that one. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've reached the FDIC limit at this one bank. It's a good problem to have. And he said, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. So, okay, what, what, what else might he do with his, with his 
possessions, with the abundance that he has. He could give to others freely, right? So again, the problem here isn't that Jesus is saying you're not generous enough. It's, it's the problem with this guy is that it has become his God. So an important distinction to make there. So Jesus isn't saying sell everything you have and give it all away. He's saying be on guard against all covetousness. It will try to become your God and it'll be the end of you. They rob you of all joy in this life. See? Um, so uh, my friend, Pastor uh, Wolf Mueller, when he started, he had this, uh, this podcast way back in like 2009 uh, called Table Talk Radio is when he started it. And he was trying to get some money to buy some new equipment. So he had this, he had this advertisement. He says, in large catechism, Luther says that money will try to become your God and, and rob you of all joy. And so I want to help rid you of that terrible burden. If you give me some of your money, then I... <laughs> was that a bad idea? No. So what God's trying to do is he's, he's exposing the idol. He's using this parable even to show the self-centeredness of, the, of this idolatry of money and stuff. You're never going to have enough. You always want to get more and more. And the idea is I can finally... This is what, that's what this guy says. If I can just have more, I can build larger ones and I have everything that I have and I'll be set. And then I'll have... Then I can finally... Relax. And that's right when he, he dies. Um, so at, well, one more note on this. So with all this inward turning of this guy, at creation, God, God created humans to be outward focused. They're focused on the needs of others, caring for the animals even, caring for Eve. Um, even their work isn't self-serving because they don't need to eat, Right? They didn't have to eat. There's always looking to the other. And then finally, with the, the, the great fall, was I could be like God. So now I turn to myself. I'm wanting what I didn't have to be like God. And then everything turns in to seeking, my, seeking myself in my own belly. And there in the barns, I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, who, who does that? <laughs> Talks to himself. And that's the soul that's going to be required of him in the next verse. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, according to Ecclesiastes, and this is a great line in Ecclesiastes. I think it was the Old Testament reading from maybe four or five weeks ago, where it might actually be the, the Old Testament lesson that's paired with this gospel lesson, in fact. There is nothing better than to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in one's to- So that, from an earthly standpoint, that is true. There is absolutely, what, what is better than to just enjoy this life for, for the material stuff that it is? That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes because apart from Jesus, apart from eternal life, that's all this life kind of devolves into is trying to find a way to relax as best you can, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, fool, this night your soul, again earlier he talked to himself, soul, right? Um, your, your soul is required of you. So he's, he, he dies and he's, brought, he's, he's subpoenaed for judgment, you could say, as one of the commentators puts it. Um, so it, you can see in his, in his desire to relax, eat, drink, and be merry, this desire for the good life. It shows like what his, that's the good life. That's what he was driving toward. Um, also though, I mean, I think to, to maybe, as I'm thinking this through out loud, Maybe what if we said, you know, what if, if I won the lottery, though, and if I had 
whatever, these crazy numbers, $300 million or whatever, you be sure, Pastor, I would give it to the church. As though such a gift would help us. You see? So the, the inherent problem is that the desire for the good life, not to be sure, we need a new roof in the bathroom, so, you know, it is Stewardship Sunday after all. Um, but, so, but the idea is that this, if, I, if we just had more money, it's going to actually solve our problems. The real, and it, and it potentially create, could create more. Because he says this, when um, your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Well, we think, well, it'll be my, my children's. So it'll, be, it'll go into the, 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 the trust, and then the trust will go to my kids, and they'll have everything they could ever possibly need. As, and we're thinking in there that that's necessarily a good thing. See? Like, and yet, you see this cycle time and time again. Like Everybody who grew up in the Depression, and they had nothing. They work really, really, really hard. They learn a great work ethic, and they learn the value of things. And they work, they work so hard that they want to be able to prevent their kids from having the lack that they once had that actually enabled them to have a work ethic. And they give it to their kids, and their kids turn out being a disaster. They can't figure out what happened. So to have a bunch of stuff isn't necessarily a gift. But the promise of the world is that it is, because that's all the world can give. So the good life is the, the abundance of stuff. I can just have more, then there'll be true joy there, Right? And even if, even if, if I had billions of dollars, Pastor, surely I'd, I'd give it to the church as though, and that, that just takes the church and has us thinking, we're, we're independent. We don't, we don't actually need God. We do, we do that individually. That's the problem that we're against here. Remember he said the land, the land produced plentifully, but it's, it's my stuff. I'm independent from God. That's the risk that we run in, in thinking, the forgetting that all that we have is coming from his generosity. And the church corporately is no, is no different from them. We need to be reminded that it's the Lord's church and he'll see us through, even if we can't afford to, um, like I, I don't panic when people say, well, pastor, what happens if Pritzker takes away our, our what is it, 5013C status and we have to pay property taxes? And yeah, it's gonna be rough. We'll just sell the land and we'll go to the D'Amico's house. We'll have church in the D'Amico backyard and, We'll, fit, like we'll find a way. The church is not possessed of brick and mortar, right? And yet we think if we just have more money, then we can sustain. So we just want to be guarding it. We're guarding against this covetousness. I mean, covetousness is true with churches. When you think about that, this is a big one. Um, and I'm terrible about this. Every church, I walk into some other, some other church, and I'm like, I, I want to do, we should do our narthex like that. It'd be nice if we had a little coffee spot like that. Or, oh, I like the way they did that stained glass. That'd be kind of cool. And I come walk back into our church, I'm like, my dog, stain on the wall, I gotta fix that. See, like looking, longing for coveting what other people have brings a dissatisfaction, which is why it's better to go into dilapidated churches. <laughs> no, but, but you see the point there. It's a covetousness creeps in. And this is, I mean, this isn't really the, the nature of the parable, but the idea of covetousness, true, that all of, I would say all of you, that's a sweeping statement, all of us, are guilty of saying the church that I grew up in, they actually did it right. If this church the way that I'm at today could just be more like that one. So we need to make this church more like that one. Until we, you make this one like that one, this is gonna be your church. So I'll refer to it as your church. Instead of just saying, no, that, and you're, and you're asking all the wrong stuff. You're focusing on the wrong, the wrong thing. What, what was it about your church that you like more? Oh, we used to have this really cool thing where we did this and oh, whatever. What is the church? 
at its fundamental level, it's where the Lord does what? Has his gospel preached and his sacraments administered. That is the church. And then we get wrapped up on all these other things and we cover what we don't have. Yeah, there's, there's a church down the street from me that does this really cool thing. And pastor, the youth just come out like crazy. As if you can't bait and switch youth to do stuff before they can, you know? Like, um, so don't, let's not, covetousness isn't just about the money. It's about a lot of things that we can look at what other people have. And it, let's keep running with the, with the people in church thing. Who, who brings people into church? What's the parable of the net? The fishermen cast the net. Sometimes the net gets full. Sometimes it's full of like shoes and old tires. Uh, the, the Lord puts the fish in the net. Same with the parable of the sower. He's the one who grows the seed. So it sets us free from thinking, man, if we could just, if we could just do the program that we did in 1983, the classic Lutheran problem. We'll keep, we'll keep doing what we did in the 80s, and that'll work today. Surely the youth of today will be responsive to the things that were effective in 1964. No, they will not. And yet we think that way. Uh, we can have, we'll, get, we'll draw the youth in on some man-made program, regardless of its time stamp. But so the newest, greatest thing to try to draw on the families, as if God's up there saying, you know, Pastor Klimmer, if you would just do this one program, then the gates would open and the people would come running in. But until you get that one program, I'm gonna hold them back over here. Doesn't work, since when does the church work like that? He, it's like the opposite. Like, I feel like we just do so many things wrong and then people just show up. Oh, this is great. What's, what's so great about it? You just said my sins were forgiven. I actually had that experience with, a, with a, some people relatively recently, just like the shock of the things that we take for granted, that my sins are actually forgiven? I guess I just never, I never got that at church before. How did you not get that at church? What are you even doing? But it's just, just the things that we take for granted of what's the main thing here, right? And the Lord brings the, the gift of, of people or the Lord gives us what we have, uh, blesses us with even what we don't have. And the good life then is us being able to see what we have as a gift from him and recognize it as a gift even when it's lack, because ultimately we know that the good life is ultimately yet to come. That no matter if we have everything that this world promises and everything that we think would be so great to have in this life, ultimately it, it dissolves as quick as you get it, you know? Um, let's see if there's any other notes here. Oh, so remember the context. So he finishes with, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the lays up treasure, it's actually like in the large catechism, Luther talks about crowding out, having so much treasure like in yourself of, of earthly possessions that you crowd out and push out Jesus. And we're not rich toward God because we have these riches now. Then we're reminded of who he's talking to. Remember the, the question, the guy who stumbled into the room and raises his hand, hey, solve this debate between me and my brother. So what's, what's this long way that Jesus is answering the guy? His question was, Jesus, what? Tell my, tell my brother to divide the earthly inheritance. And Jesus is saying to him, what? You're thinking about the wrong inheritance because I actually want to give you all. Half isn't enough. But stop focusing on this stuff, right? Since when is having all of this earthly inheritance necessarily good for you? 
And just when you think you have it all, it's taken away from you. Any thoughts or comments on that? Tremendous wisdom and helpful. In a way, it's certainly law from Jesus, turning us away from our our covetous, exposing our covetousness. Remember the, the, the main use of the law from Romans 3 is that it reveals our sin. It shows us our sin. So it's always going to find it. You're never going to rid yourself of it. Uh, whenever you hear the law preached, by every time you hear this text, even if you gave all your money away, you'd still be longing for more. Longing, putting your hope and trust in it. That's what the law is ultimately always doing. It's always convicting us. But then also in a very practical way, it's saying, if you want to have joy in your life, stop be coveting what everybody else has. Now this, it runs right into this next section on do not be anxious, okay? So if we have a little bit of time, yeah, five minutes. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit and then we'll, we'll keep unfolding it uh, next week. But uh, verse 22, do not be anxious. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, which means he's, this is meant to be continuous with what this whole teaching in the parable with the guy of the barns. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he gives these great parables of the, or connections to the analogies, I guess you'd say, between the ravens um, and the lilies of the field. One thing I forgot to do on your handout, because I'm terrible actually looking at the handout that I give you. <laughs> Why do you do this handout, Pastor? At the bottom of their first page is a great quote from the large catechism that I think is a fruitful for us to look at in the context of all this. What does to have a God mean? Or what is God? Answer, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. There are some who think that they have God and everything they need when they have money and property. They trust in them and boast in them so stubbornly and securely that they care for no one else. They too have a God, mammon by name, that is money and property, on which they set their whole heart. This is the most common idol on earth. Those who have money and property feel secure, happy, and fearless as if they were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, those who have nothing doubt and despair as if they knew of no God at all. We will find very few who are cheerful, who do not fret and complain if they do not have mammon. So whether you have a lot of it or don't have any of it, it's, it's still trying to control you and become your God. You always want it. You want more if you have a lot because you always want to have a little bit more security. And if you don't have any, then you think if I just had some, it would be so much greater for me. This desire for wealth clings and sticks to our nature all the way to the grave. Therefore, I repeat the correct interpretation of this commandment is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart trusts completely. And so the Lord preaches the, preaches the law to us to turn us, to free us from the bondage to mammon, this grasping of earthly things that ultimately can't, can't ultimately save us and help us to solve all of our problems. Even though it promises that, it tries to promise us all these things. So he wants to free up our hands from these gifts. He shatters these idols at times. That's the way we're able to see as hard as it is when the stock market crashes and you're 
and your retirement is gone and all that relaxing eat, eat, drink and be merry that you're hoping to do for the next decade is taken away from you or whatever. This is ultimately Jesus taking that idol that you're clinging to here and just shat, ripping it out of your hand. Because it's, it wasn't up to, it's, it's not eternal. It's leading you away from him, right? He's able to take loss and make it into a blessing for us, setting us free from the God of mammon, the idol of mammon. Because we, we all know, I mean, you know, even earthly wisdom is you can't take it with you, right? Even if you're not going anywhere, you're just dying, you can't. So eat, drink, and be merry, live while you can. Now you can't, you can't take it, you can't take it with you. Um, but we know it can't, it can't chase away cancer. It's like throw all the money that you want at cancer. And at the end of the day, your body just, at a certain point, the body and the mind just give out, right? And it's a helpful reminder, I mean, to, to be, unfortunately in our culture, we, we kind of push death. We like to hide from death because it's scary. And, um, but to, to, go visit, to go visit nursing homes of those who, who maybe had, from an earthly perspective, had such great abundance. And then just to be, when the mind is completely gone and they're left with, um, I said, I'll tell you a story. You know this person. Oh, yeah, he wouldn't mind. I don't, yeah, he would, but I don't care. Rich, Sudas. You know Rich? Yep. Uh, Gail is now with Jesus, and Rich is getting close. Uh, Rich uh, worked very hard in a tremendous career, like working in China, and had a lot of earthly blessings, and he was always very, very generous with his gifts. Um, and now Rich is in this tiny uh, room. It's about the size of this circle on which I stand. There's a bed, a TV, that he's, they can't even watch because he's kind of out of it. And then a closet that's got like three shirts in it. And that's like it. So I walk in and Rich is sleeping. And I try to talk to him. So then he just started singing, creating me a clean heart, oh God. And he opens his eyes and starts singing, creating me a clean heart, oh God. I say the Lord's Prayer. He repeats to me the Lord's Prayer. I start singing, Jesus loves me, and he fell asleep. <laughs> and then, so like... I kind of did a couple of prayers and blessing with him. And then I, I was like, okay, Rich, I love you, man. I'll, I'll see you next time. And I go to leave. And as I'm hitting the door, he's, he, he breaks out. Yes, Jesus loves me. He's cranking it out out of nowhere. Ah, that's the good life, right? So to, to have nothing that this world promised that would mean everything, ultimately to have the life, the one, the Jesus, have everything else taken away from us is to have the only thing that matters. But we're always filling our hands and our pockets up with other things, right? So Jesus is giving us his helpful law to, to free us from the temptation of making mammon into our idols and uh, turning us away from him. So we'll pick up where time, we'll pick up next week with uh, verse 22 and unfold more of this wonderful teaching from Jesus on do not be anxious. The Lord be with you.